Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about some interesting research into the psychological response of service members who were deployed to Africa during the Ebola crisis. Their perceptions of family support and their perception of um, positive leader support Um, It decreased symptoms of anxiety, of uh, insomnia. Then we'll learn about a hospital-run pharmacy that will be open to hospital patients as well as the public. We look for any kind of support, manufacturer support, copay cards, foundation supports if you truly can't afford things. Again, our goal is to make sure you go home with your medication. And we'll talk about continuing efforts designed to help people quit smoking. If you're on the right treatment plan with the right medications, my patients really don't have withdrawal symptoms. They tell me on a weekly basis this is much easier than I thought it would be. All that in a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn of a new hospital-run pharmacy that will supply medications to patients on their way home. Then, we'll talk about helping people quit smoking and a new effort underway at Upstate University Hospital. But first, we'll talk with a researcher who studied the psychological response of service members who were deployed to Africa during the height of the Ebola outbreak a few years ago. An infectious disease expert at Upstate worked with Army colleagues to investigate the psychological perspective of the U.S. service members who responded to the Ebola crisis. With me in the studio today is Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's a professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology, and he specializes in infectious diseases. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to hear more about this study, but let's first remind listeners about what the Ebola crisis was. It wasn't that long ago. No. Uh, so the the majority of the crisis was between uh, 2014 and 2016. It was declared by the World Health Organization as a, a public health emergency. Um, you know, at the end, they believe that about 28, over 28,000 people were actually infected. And uh, of that number, about 11,000 uh, died. And of course, the the impact, though, was not just in West Africa, right? It was a global uh, impact, and it impacted travel, it impacted commerce, it impacted uh, uh, the survivors uh, and their family members, and um, the financial uh, impact just for the United States was billions of dollars. So, it, And there were yeah. people in America that had the disease. Right. So there were, uh, there were people who returned from travel that... Uh, um, that had been infected and were, were treated at various uh, medical centers in the United States. And I remember the, you know, the quarantines and the things. It was right. It was yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of information, misinformation, uh, and um, there was a lot of anxiety. Well, the study you were involved in, um, and there were a few studies that you've done, but um, it looked at the psychological response to in service members who were deployed to Liberia. Um, so there's one study you had in the journal Military Medicine um, looking at these the psychological response. Why is this an important thing to study? 
Right. So I guess um, I'll take sort of a high-level view initially. So um, I was in the Army at the time, so you're correct in saying the Army colleagues. I was, uh, I was a, a colonel in the U.S. Army Medical Corps, and I worked at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, which is the, the DOD's uh, largest biomedical research and development uh, facility. It's in Silver Spring, Maryland. And half of that organization is uh, dedicated to um, uh, mitigating the threat of infectious diseases for the service member. But the other half of the institute uh, is a, a center that is focused on military psychiatry and neuroscience. And so they look at um, PTSD. They look at traumatic brain injuries. They look at concussion. They look at the impact of um, mental and behavioral health issues um, on operational performance as well as just general wellness. They do an incredible amount of research on sleep and the impact that sleep has on operational performance. So when it was decided by the White House that the uh, U.S. military was going to participate in the global response uh, and the president um, was going to order approximately 3,000 U.S. service members uh, to go to Liberia as part of Operation United Assistance, um, I me being primarily on the infectious diseases side, reached out to the colleagues on the military psychiatry side. And I said, you know, listen, there have been past outbreaks where um, people that have responded in a, a medical provider capacity uh, detailed their experiences and, and it wasn't, uh, and there were a lot of psychosocial issues that weren't necessarily thought about or addressed in a, in sort of a prospective way. And um, the military psychiatry group had done this related to combat operations. But this was kind of a new operation. I mean, the military has been involved uh, in responding to medical um, crises before, but this was a little bit um, different and the circumstances were a little bit different. So we thought that it would be something important to um, to prospectively think about and look at and think about the questions. And, um, and at the same time we were thinking about this, um, the senior leadership within the Department of Defense was trying to understand um, so if we send 3,000 service members to a quote-unquote hot zone, when they redeploy and come back to the United States, what does this mean for the communities that they come back to and reintegrate into? Um, what does this mean uh, from an infectious diseases standpoint, but also what does this mean from just a, a psychological standpoint? The service members' psychology, the community psychology, their family members, um, and so it, there was lots and lots of discussion, but in the end, a, uh, a policy of controlled monitoring um, was, uh, was put in place, which meant that when a service member redeployed from, uh, uh, from West Africa, they would be put into um, a 21-day period where they were um, uh, basically, quarant I guess quarantined is a word you could use, but uh, they were basically put in a situation where they were monitored and they were having their temperatures taken every day and they were reporting, um, you know, if they were having any health effect, you know, if they were having any signs or symptoms of disease, they were uh, given opportunities to um, kind of decompress from the, uh, uh, the deployment, to do training, to do education, uh, to just exercise, to do all these sorts of things. So this um, is when they got back correct. from Africa, but before they went to their back home. Right. Because normally what could happen is it would might be just a couple of days between the time that you redeploy from an operation and the time that you're back with your family. So this added another three weeks where they were separated from 
separated they're from their families um, in terms of physical contact, obviously, you know, phones and Skype and things like that uh, were still in play. Um, so, you know, there it was a very difficult decision, I think, for, um, uh, you know, Pentagon senior leadership to make this decision, but they made the decision. And so these these studies uh, kind of detail at a very high level um, how the service member felt about that decision and how they felt about being put into a controlled monitoring situation. And um, I think overall the... Uh, the attitudes that they had towards quarantine and these um, uh, and the attitudes that they had towards their leadership were, uh, you know, generally very very positive. And we can talk a little bit about the specifics if you'd like. Um, and there was also some interesting, uh, uh, unexpected um, uh, perspectives about the quarantine. So well, I that's definitely want to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with infectious disease expert Dr. Stephen Thomas. Um, I'd like to know how, because you have these 3,000 service members, um, how you set these studies up. You talked to them before they left, while they were gone, uh, when they got back. Um, did you did you get any sense for whether there was fear going to an Ebola, like you call it a hot zone, where right. there's poss- Ebola versus combat? How right. do those compare? Right. So we so there were about three thousand service members from you know multiple different uh, branches of the military that um, that deployed to West Africa. We focused on a couple of specific units. Um, they were army units. These were units that uh, the military psychiatry and neuroscience folks had worked with uh, before, primarily in combat related uh, missions. We had a very very short timeline in which to put all of this together. Uh, putting all this together involved not only thinking through the what questions do we have, how are we going to ask the questions, how are we going to, you know, what kind of information are we going to get, is it going to be able to be analyzed and sort of um, informative in any way, but we had to get ethical review committee approval, we had to be able to um, uh, have permissions to engage the troops, we had to be able to, which meant we had to go and talk to their leadership and, and uh uh, had to brief them on what we wanted to do and and why we wanted to uh, uh, to do it, um, and then it became once all those approvals were in place, and and I I will say that the um, you know it's it's complex and hard enough work for these service members and their leadership to get ready for a deployment. To add additional layers of complexity is not easy, but they were incredibly welcoming, and they were really interested in having this. Having this done, um, so once once all those approvals were in place, then it, it was in the form of a, um, an anonymous questionnaire that people could uh, fill out, and about 500 people or so um, filled it out. And um, the uh, the the study that's detailed in, in Public Health looks at the the um, the questionnaire that was completed in the last three days of of quarantine. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that, that was pretty much how the, uh, how the study was done. And it was sort of incorporated into the, uh, um, the, the pre-deployment uh, training that they went through in the pre-deployment, uh, um, briefings. So to get to the second part of your question about how did people generally feel? Well, they, they, they clearly were able to distinguish this mission from combat missions. That was the first thing. Um, they, they understood what they were, what they, where they were going, why they were going there. Um, they understood what the 
risks were. Um, and, you know, those risks were, and if we just think about the infectious disease risk, um, they understood that, yes, they were going to an Ebola hot zone, but they also understood how do you get Ebola and how do you not get Ebola? And they understood what their mission was going to be. And they knew that they were not going to be, they did not have a patient care mission. They understood they were not going to be dealing with people that had, had uh, died of Ebola, right? They weren't going to be doing, uh, you know, dealing with uh, bodies, basically. Um, and so, uh, and, and this was because their, you know, the military leadership and the infectious diseases and other medical personnel put together very, very good briefings prior to the deployment to inform people about um, how you get these diseases. You know, I, at, at the time, I was the infectious diseases consultant to the U.S. Army Surgeon General, and she asked me, you know, are you, are, are you concerned about our troops getting exposed to Ebola? And I said, no, ma'am, I'm, I'm concerned about malaria <laughs> a lot more than I'm concerned about Ebola. Because we had sent uh, a couple hundred Marines 10 years before to Liberia, and about 30% of them came down with very severe malaria. So the service members understood that, you know, we're going and doing this mission because of Ebola, but we have to be concerned about, you know, malaria, other diseases that can be transmitted by mosquitoes or ticks or things like that. We have to be concerned about traveler's diarrhea. I mean, like they, un they understood. Um, and so, so well, I let think me it, ask you yeah. this. Did, did any service members get Ebola on this no. deployment? Did any get malaria? So, you know, I think this is another, uh, it's not, this, it's not in the papers, but, um, so our primary focus was, or our primary concern was malaria, and we had a very good, um, in some cases, directly observed therapy. In other cases, it was the service member taking responsibility for ensuring they were taking their malaria prophylaxis. Uh, and not a single, uh, at least at the time that, as of when I left the military back in October of 16, um, not a single service member had contracted the severe form of malaria. We did have other types of malaria that are less severe, but the fatal form, the form that the Marines had experienced 10 years prior, um, at least at the time that I left, not a, a single service member that I was aware of. So that was a huge, a huge win. Well, you alluded to something that um, surprised you in this work. Yeah, so it was interesting because we asked the service members about, um, so we, we wanted to know about their attitudes towards quarantine. And so it was um, kind of complete this sentence. The 20-day the controlled monitoring period um, will reduce anxiety in our communities, for example, or is understandable, or will help keep our families safe. So we asked them questions about that. We asked them about the behaviors of their leadership and whether or not they felt their leaders were um, sort of focused on healthcare prevention and preventive medicine. We asked them questions about that and their perceptions of how they were being led. Um, and, you know, the responses that we got. And then we asked about family support and how important was that? How important was it that the family understood, okay, I, I know I'm not going to see you for another three weeks, even though you may be down the road mm -hmm. <laughs> in that military installation, but I understand why that's important to you um, to me, to our community. So we asked about those things and, you know, both the, their perceptions of family support and their perception of, um, positive leader support. Um, it decreased symptoms of anxiety, of, uh, insomnia, of it decreased functional impairment, uh, and improved their own 
personal uh, positive attitudes about the whole process and, and what they were doing. Um, it decreased uh, depressive symptoms in some people. Uh, but what was not expected was that about one in five of the people that we uh, surveyed thought that this controlled monitoring program should be part of every deployment, whether it was an, yeah, whether it was an infectious disease deployment or a combat mission, um, because they, you know, the, the people that responded this way kind of felt that, you know, that three-week experience was a very helpful transition for them from going to, yeah, from going to a very foreign environment to, uh, you know, coming back into, um, into the United States. Um, it just gave them a time to decompress, to catch up on sleep, to, uh, you know, if they were having any health ailments, to get them taken care of. It gave them an opportunity to um, uh, just, you know, uh, get the things done that you need to get done wow. when you redeploy, uh, to just get it done in a different sort of timeline. Um, you know, and, and so it was, uh, that was surprising to us. And um, yeah. Well, before I let you go, I've got to ask if Ebola is still a threat. Um, so it's it's certainly not a threat at the scale that it was back in 2014 to 2016, but there are always, uh, it's always there. It's always, um, you know, in the environment and there's always the possibility that somebody will inadvertently come across it and, and, and it could be uh, transmitted to a human and then they could transmit to other humans. Um, but, you know, Ebola is just one of the many flavors <laughs> of uh, infectious diseases that have potential to emerge or reemerge. Um, you know, MERS-CoV, which is a very severe respiratory uh, virus, has been in the news a lot in the Middle East, um, has about, you know, uh, a 20 to 40 percent mortality rate and can be transmitted pretty readily between people. Uh, the Zika outbreak, which uh, we all lived through most recently, um, you know, yellow fever in Brazil right now is a major problem. There's not enough vaccine. Um, there's always the concern. I mean, this year's just regular seasonal influenza kills between 30 and 50,000 people just in this country every year. Um, so there, there's, there are lots and lots of threats out there. And as we wrote in the paper, and it still is my opinion, um, you know, the military, uh, just because of how they're organized and how they do their jobs, uh, they can, you know, when it's a large scale problem, like the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, they can play a very valuable role. And um, it, I would guess, and I would wager that um, because of the success they had uh, in Operation United Assistance, they may be called upon Again, in others, uh, yeah, in other scenarios, and so I think the information that uh, you know, and this is, you know, just a couple, you know, this is 500 service members filling out surveys and talking to people, but I think it's valuable information, and I think it will help to inform uh, senior leadership within the Pentagon uh, and within the different branches of the military as they plan for future wow. deployments. Well, thank you so much for the information. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Thomas, a professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, why one hospital is opening a pharmacy in its lobby on Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate University Hospital is opening a pharmacy that's easily accessible to the front entrance and open to the public. And here to tell us more about it is Eric Belotin and Dave Geloso from the pharmacy department. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. So, uh, Eric, tell me why the hospital decided to open a pharmacy in the lobby. Well, we're, we're trying to mirror ourselves a little bit off of the other large academic medical centers around the country where we're trying to decrease the fragmentation of care between a hospital and a patient going home. So if we're able to take care of those patients, because our goals are aligned with the hospital goals, uh, we're not looking at a financial gain, we're looking at what's best interest of the patient, uh, as opposed to a normal retail pharmacy where their goals are a little different than what ours are. So this pharmacy, um, what's it going to look like? What will, what will be available in it? So in the, in the pharmacy itself, well, one great thing is that we're going to have expanded hours. So we'll be open Monday through Friday, 9 to 7, and we're open Saturday, Sunday, 9 to 2, uh, which is a little better for patient discharges because we know people go home every day uh, of the week. We don't take any days off when we're in, uh, in a hospital institution. Uh, we will carry a minimal amount of front-end supplies, such as some supplies you can't get at other pharmacies. So if you're a patient in a hospital that is coming from the burn center, we will carry certain kinds of wound supplies to treat patients with a burn, uh, burn type of... Uh, so that would be like over-the-counter, but, but a lot of pharmacies don't have that. Correct. So, okay. Very yeah. specialized, very specific over-the-counter stuff. So we're trying to be unique in the sense that, you know, we know that there's certain things in the hospital uses for patients for to treat them, and it's very expensive for those outpatient pharmacies because there's so many of those guys to each of those to carry those specialized products so we want to take the initiative and we want to carry those products to take care of our patients when they go home okay and then any prescription that a doctor would write correct we, we can to... take care of any patient that's currently leaving the hospital we can take care of any family member that has a prescription they want to fill with us like anybody walking in we're an open door pharmacy for anybody in the general area of the, of the hospital. Employees, and employees um, as well. people that work nearby or whatever. Correct. Okay. Um, now, what about compounding or specialty medications? Because not all pharmacies have, have that ab ability. Yep. We will have compounding on a limited basis, focusing mostly on the pediatric departments, uh, making sure that we get the kids what they need. Okay. Now, has there always been a pharmacy that patients could get prescriptions from at the hospital? And yeah. how is this different? So over the last 20, about 20 years ago, the hospital itself had an inpatient or an outpatient pharmacy that the hospital owned. Uh, for the last 20 years, we've been contracting out of our services to uh, a different kind of chain pharmacy. Uh, this is significantly different because, again, I, I think we have expanded hours. We have the ability to take care of our patients at bedside. Uh, we're able to offer services that those pharmacies were not willing to do. Um, through a, a, a increased immunizations. We're going to try to immunize uh, patients' family members as well as patients who get immunized when they come to the hospital. Um, we're going to have a, uh, we hired a significant amount of staff to take care of our patients. We are, have the ability to get prior offs for patients' medications. Prior authorization from Correct. like insurance companies? So when a prescription's written, uh, probably it's getting larger and larger and people are very familiar with that. When a prescription's sent to a pharmacy, pharmacies now, insurance companies, put those prescriptions on hold, stating that they want a reason why those patients need to be on those medications. So we've developed an external prior auth team to manage prior offs uh, on behalf of our pharmacy so that when a patient's scripts are written at the hospital, 
we will go ahead and we will get those prior offs so a patient can actually get their prescription when they need it as without a delay. Interesting. Well, um, it, to the passerby, this is going to look like a new area in the lobby, but there's been a whole uh, a big effort behind the scenes for this. Um, how many people were hired to kind of get this going? So we were authorized 17 full-time positions. Those positions have been broken up into uh, retail pharmacy techs, and those refill, retail pharmacy techs are going to double as uh, our meds-to-bed technicians. So if you can imagine somebody sitting in a hospital and waiting to go home, they have to worry about where they're going to get their prescriptions, going home, dropping off the patient, or having the patient wait in the car while they pick up their prescriptions from the pharmacy. The idea of the meds-to-beds program is that we can have all those medications filled and we can time that so when they are being discharged, our med-to-bed technicians can bring those right to their bedside. We can either use our iPads uh, with a FaceTime kind of counseling, or if we have availability of the pharmacist and the patient needs additional counseling, a pharmacist can go to the bedside and actually do some teaching and education to the patients. So that alleviates the need of stopping somewhere on the way home as you've been discharged. You Correct. can go home with the things that you need. Um, so, do, is it is it um, designed to increase compliance of um, patients actually? I mean, a doctor can write a prescription, but if the patient doesn't go fill it, right, it's not right. going to do much There's a huge problem, as we talked about, with, with people. So of the people that we're hiring, four, seven of those are pharmacy technicians to do the meds to beds. And that's not only going to increase compliance because the patient will get their medications prior to leaving the hospital, which is a goal, so they can go home. They can go home and try to become healthy and rest and be with their family as opposed to stopping at a pharmacy. National statistics show that 25% of the prescriptions that are written, uh, patients never pick up because when they get to the pharmacy, there's a lot, they don't get the prior auths done. Pharmacy doesn't have the medication. So if you're asking a patient to come back to a pharmacy to pick up your prescriptions, there's a big incidence where they're not going to take the medications or not eventually pick them up. And the whole goal of this program really is to re reduce hospital readmissions because we all know if you take your medications as prescribed, most likely you're not going to come back to the hospital for a misadventure associated with not taking your blood pressure medication, not taking your, your, your uh, cardiac medication, even down to medications related to uh, stomach ailments. If you don't take those, you come back to the hospital, end up in the ED, where our goal is to really keep you out of that hospital. You came once. We don't want to. We don't. We would love to. We don't really want to see you come back on a on a routine basis. Okay. Well, let me remind listeners. This is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with uh, two people here from the pharmacy department. We have Eric Belotin and Dave Geloso. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about each of your roles. Now, Dave, you're a pharmacist. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I will be so. the pharmacy manager for the outpatient pharmacy. Um, Myself and Emily Adame uh, will be the two pharmacists that start the pharmacy, and Eric will be working with us as well. Uh, we've assembled a team of seven technicians that will be working both in the pharmacy and on the floors uh, to provide a meds to beds program and uh, a bunch of other programs. All right, well, let's talk about um, how it's going to work when a patient comes into the hospital, uh, because some people... Maybe they have a pharmacy that they are comfortable with close to their home and they, you know, want to stick with that. Are they going to be able to do that? Yep, you always have an option. So, you know, again, patients always have a choice on whether to accept the program that the hospital wants to offer or not. So every patient coming to the hospital, part of our admission protocol at the hospital will be to ask them, do you want to participate with our meds to beds program? That means, do you want your medications delivered to your bedside? Do you want the authorizations done? 
Do you want potentially medication assistance to occur at your bedside before you leave so you can actually go home with the meds? A patient can choose no. Uh, a patient can choose yes. If they choose yes, we will initiate all the services that the outpatient pharmacy has to get that patient hopefully out of the hospital with their medications, maybe more timely than they would have on, on, um, if they were using their normal pharmacy. We, are, we know we service patients all over the region. And we understand that patients have a relationship with their current pharmacists. And we definitely don't want to repeat upon that. We, we, you know, we understand the, the patient-pharmacist relationship, if, but we want to get you out of the hospital. So we would love the opportunity to take care of you. We would love the opportunity for you to stay with us after you get home. But we're not asking you to do that. We would like to get you out of the hospital. If you choose to remain with your pharmacy, all you got to do, New York State allows us to transfer prescriptions. Just go to your regular pharmacy, ask us to transfer prescriptions, and we can go ahead and coordinate all that for you. So if I'm leaving the hospital, I can take, because um, this is a convenient service, I can take advantage of that, but then when it comes time to refill or whatever, I can go back to my... If you choose to, if we, I choose we, to. we think we're going to supply excellent service. We're going to think sure. we, part of what we also have of our 17 people, we've hired a couple people to work on medication assistance. So that means that those patients, after your, your scripts go to the pharmacy, the pharmacy needs an authorization, goes to our authorization team. Authorization determines that you have high copays. Um, then it goes to our medication assistance team. And all this happens behind the scenes. We look for any kind of support, manufacturer support, copay cards, foundation supports if you truly can't afford things. Again, our goal is to make sure you go home with your medication. So all that happens behind the scenes, and then basically you go home with your medications. And those are services that an not otherwise your normal pharmacy doesn't provide. So we're, okay. we're, we're really happy to be able to support our patients and do that. Now, and let me ask Dave too, on um, in terms of like the medical part of it, if I mean, patients that are hospitalized, some of them can be taking multiple medications. Um, is there a mechanism where you look over that prescription list um, to make sure things aren't, I don't know, canceling each other out or causing problems or not working well? Yes, we will have access to the inpatient medical records, so we'll be able to see what the doctors are prescribing. Then we'll be able to match that up with the prescriptions that the doctor has written for them on the outside. And before the patient goes home, we will reconcile our list to make sure that we're including everything that they need to get healthy and to go home and to recuperate. Part of that is also going through what they came into the hospital on, those medications, it's a very common scenario for people to go home with a new list of medications and then right. continue taking their old medications at the same time. We're going to try to avoid that by reconciling all of that right there at the bedside for them so that they know that this is their new regimen and if they have old regimens at home, to go ahead and stop those. Um, what about vitamins? A lot of people take vitamins. Is that Does that come into play too? or? or or, uh, um, it does. Um, when we do our medication uh, history report on these patients, when we receive them into the hospital, we go through and we look for every possible medication that they can be on. And it's actually kind of funny because most people don't consider their vitamins part of their medication regimen. Uh, but we have a very detailed list that we go down to make sure that we capture uh, people oftentimes don't believe that their eye drops are considered uh, part of their medication regimen or patches that they're taking or ointments and creams that they've been prescribed. We try to get a very complete picture of what they're doing at home so that we can continue it in the hospital. And then on discharge, we can continue it back to their homes. And that whole continuity of care is what we're after. Neat. Well, and it seems like um, that oversight would help uh, in terms of keeping you know people 
healthy and not returning. So, which is our goal. Great. Yep. Again, I mean, I think an advantage of the pharmacy over. So we've contracted out pharmacy services from the hospital for the last 20 years, and that pharmacy has always been located within the lobby, but behind security walls. So it's been not a convenient spot for patients to come to, or for anybody from the outside to come to, or for our family members to get to, unless you, because the hospital's a secure environment, to get a badge. We're on outside of the security level. So we're between the lobby and the cancer center, right behind the giving wall. We are on this side, the proper side or the patient side, uh, the public side of security. So they have complete access uh, to us. We also are gonna be really excited about that we have a, we consider something called a red box. And that's where we wanna get rid of those medications that you no longer need. Uh, there's been a big push um, to get those unused medications out of your cupboard or get them out of the water supply. We don't want people flushing old pills and liquids down the toilet because it just goes into into the environment which is not good for it. And we don't want people, children, or some mishap happening with old medications at someone's home. So uh, we were approved by the Department of Conservation for New York State to obtain a waste disposal box and be right outside the pharmacy as well for uh, family members and everybody to drop off their old medications. Oh, that's good too. And Wonderful. Nor normally that's only available at fire stations and police stations. And no, no, none of the other hospitals in the area have that box. So we're excited about that opportunity. Well, thank you both for, he for being here. I appreciate it. This is good news to report. Uh, my guests have been um, two people from the pharmacy department, Eric Ballatin and Dave Deloso. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, no-cost assistance for helping people quit smoking. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University was the first SUNY campus to go smoke-free back in 2005, and today it remains smoke-free and tobacco-free. Here to talk about that policy and a new way of helping people stick to it is Teresa Hankin. She's a respiratory therapist and Mayo Clinic certified tobacco treatment specialist and the smoking cessation education coordinator at Upstate. Welcome, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell us about this new initiative. I'm very excited about this new initiative um, that Upstate is undertaking for a three-month pilot. It's called Clear the Air Comfort Kits, and it is two four-milligram nicotine replacement um, lozenges that uh, any of our visitors can use while on campus because there's just there's no place that you can smoke or vape that's using an electronic cigarette while you're a visitor at any upstate location. So these this is mostly for families and friends of people who are hospitalized? Yes, that's right. correct, 18 years or older. Okay, so um, how is this going to work? How does someone um, obtain this comfort kit? 
So there are two ways. One is that if you're seen using tobacco on campus, one of our university police um, members or we have a tobacco-free task force member will give them a card that gives them information as to where they can go pick up one of these comfort kits, as well as if uh, visitors here at Upstate ask you know, is there some place that I can go smoke on campus? An example being, you know, if we have a visitor in one of our um, emergency rooms with a family member and, you know, they didn't know they were going to be there and they're stressed and uncomfortable, we want them to be comfortable while they're here, but we also want them to understand the message that there's no place that they can use tobacco. So um, because of that, if someone asks, we will direct them to where they can pick up a comfort kit while they're here. So there's nowhere on campus indoors or out for smoking right that that is correct so. now you mentioned um it's a, a pilot project is that how the hospital is able to make these available and tell me more about that project so we have a tobacco free task force which is um very active here on campus and we had the idea that this is something that we would like to do and the first thing we had to do of course was get was go through administration. Administration was extremely supportive, as they always are. With Upstate, we're definitely on the forefront of tobacco treatment and control in every way. An example of that is in the Cancer Center, where we have a full circle program that helps our patients there, as well as their family members, become tobacco-free when they're ready. Um, they were very supportive, and we just got the ball rolling um, I think the stars aligned, and it was a, a perfect time for us. Um, we got the funding, and we're doing a pilot just so that we can, after that period of time, revisit it, what works, what didn't work. So it makes total sense being a healthcare institution, you know, for Upstate to be um, behind a tobacco and smoke-free policy commitment. Um, are there other reasons um, that Upstate would want to embark on this um, clear the air, it's called. Um, is that an allusion to not wanting people to have to walk through clouds of smoke? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm glad that you mentioned that. We literally want to clear the air. It's, it's really important for all our visitors to have a healthy environment, and we know that secondhand smoke is hazardous and does have harms. We don't want our visitors walking from building to building on our very large campus in clouds of smoke, whether it's from visitors or employees. So we work diligently to help our employees, as well as visitors and patients, um, be comfortable, get nicotine replacement, get what they need so that they're not having cravings and urges to smoke while they're here. And this would cut down on cigarette butts as well, right? So we all know that the cigarette butts are just, just a huge environmental issue. The filters in, in cigarettes actually do not break down. They last for a long time. They end up in waterways, they pollute our waterways, as well as just make our campus look dirty. You know, so the tobacco-free task force is always working towards that, always trying to, to clean up the environment. So uh, the campus is in its 13 year, 13th year of being smoke-free. Um, how has how's that worked out in the, for the 13 years? How has that, how's it been received? And so in, in 2017, we did an American Cancer Society survey um, for our employees, and our smoking rate is down to 4%. Huge drop from our initial um, initiative in becoming tobacco-free in um, 2005. 
We have a program that helps our employees as well as a grant for family members that are eligible and on uh, the employee's insurance to get them free medication to help them quit as well as free counseling. So that seems pretty striking. Say that again. From In 2017, you did a survey and only 4% of employees are smokers now? That's what the survey showed, wow. yes. What yes. was it before? Uh, I want to say 10%. Okay, so it's a significant. It's a significant drop. Um, We see that on campus, and and it's ongoing that we're here for you know new employees, people that come, and people that struggle, and maybe have tried to quit many times and are still struggling. So, our program is full circle. It starts with getting you the medication that you need to keep you comfortable, as well as uh, support and counseling with the tobacco treatment specialist as you're quitting, and a relapse prevention plan that helps you stay tobacco-free. Neat. One thing I've always wondered about is when someone who's a smoker gets admitted to the hospital, they're not allowed to smoke, obviously, um, but it seems like it would be tortuous to make them choose now is the time to quit smoking when they've got you know medical issues they're dealing with. Do they automatically get nicotine replacement, do you know? So, again, Upstate is on the forefront with this. We have all smoking medications on formulary, um, except the nicotine uh, nasal spray. So everything that someone would need, let's say they came into the hospital for surgery and they were on Chantix and they needed to continue their Chantix. Or let's say it's, it's all about comfort. So we don't expect that when someone comes into the hospital, they're just going to say, well, that's it, I quit. But our job then is to keep them comfortable while they're here. So uh, they have a bedside consult with a respiratory therapist who will then direct them and the provider as to what they feel that that patient needs to keep them comfortable while they're here. Do you ever see um, the hospital stay being the beginning of them quitting? If if a smoker comes in, is that ever sort of the beginning of them saying that they want to? It can always be a wonderful jump start. And part of our dream with this program, with our new retail pharmacy that's opening in May, is that with time we will have follow-up. Let's say someone comes in and um, uses some of these lozenges and speaks with a pharmacist and gets some help with quitting. That you know they try the lozenges and they think, oh, that really did work. You know, maybe I could try to quit. So they go to the pharmacist for some advice and some help with that. And and in the future, part of our um, long-distance goal is to have some sort of follow-up for patients and visitors that do use our uh, clear-the-air comfort kits. neat. Um, Some people have suggested that electronic cigarettes can be used to help smokers transition off of cigarettes. Have you um, seen that work, or do you have any experience with that? I have a lot of experience with that, and I haven't seen it work. I see a lot of dual using. I see that people go in with the best intentions, spend a lot of money for these products, um, begin uh, vaping with this water vapor, and uh, doesn't help them quit. It doesn't help them become smoke-free. It's very rare that I see someone that has quit with vaping. Uh, Is there harm reduction? Yes, there's harm reduction, but the research is showing every day there's more and more research that comes out that shows that there's cancer-causing chemicals in the water vapor. There's heavy metals. There's um, 
irritants are very irritating to the lung. Uh, what I hear the most from my patients is that they say, you know, I tried that vaping and I couldn't stop coughing. I had to go to the emergency room. I had an asthma attack and I've never had wheezing or asthma before. So it's, it's not regulated. There's no proof that it helps people quit. But we do have all these wonderful methods that we know that do help people quit. Uh, seven FDA-approved medications used in combinations that are very effective along with counseling and support. And I think one of the main things I'd like to share today is that one of the studies showed that someone is three times as likely to quit but stay quit if they have counseling and support. So whether it's a tobacco treatment specialist, our free smoking cessation classes at Oasis, um, the New York State Smokers Quit Line, that type of support and help along with the medication increases your chances of staying quit, and that's someone's ultimate goal. And you mentioned there's seven um, FDA-approved medications. You mentioned counseling and support. Um, what wh Does cold turkey work for anyone just to quit cold turkey? There always are some people that can quit cold turkey. Research shows that most people that quit cold turkey can't stay smoke-free, and it does happen sometimes, and that's wonderful. You know, it's it's what that person's ultimate goal is that they want to live a tobacco-free life. Um, but we always start with support. We're supporting people where they are. If someone said to me, if I was working with a patient in the cancer center, and they said, you know what, I just want to try this cold turkey, then what I would say to them is, that's wonderful. You know, and we're here for support. And if you have questions or if you have concerns or you want to talk about a relapse prevention plan and how to stay smoke-free forever, I can help you with that. But it's all about comfort because, you know, tobacco use is a, it's an addiction. It's an addiction to the chemical nicotine. And as your body withdraws off that chemical, there's discomfort. If you're on the right treatment plan with the right medications and the right combination and dosage that works for you, my patients really don't have withdrawal symptoms, and they're not uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, they tell me on a weekly basis this is much easier than I thought it would be. So those seven uh, FDA-approved medications, are they all nicotine replacement, or are they all designed to sort of help with the symptoms of getting off cigarettes? Mm -hmm. So um, there are two uh, pills that you can take. There's Wellbutrin and there's Chantix. And there are also, there's nicotine patches in 21, 14, or 7 milligrams. There's nicotine lozenges or gum in, in 2 or 4 milligrams. There's the nicotine inhaler and there's nicotine nasal spray. The inhaler and nasal spray are not common knowledge. A lot of people don't know about that. And they are a wonderful uh, method to help people quit. Now, in terms of the, the vapors out there, the people that are, you know, using the electronic cigarettes, are you seeing people who are, you know, wanting to quit vaping? And do these same strategies work for that as, as well as with regular cigarettes? That's a really good question. So we don't have research out on that yet. It's, it's beginning. But when, when someone comes to me and they do, you know, say, I, I really have to come off this vaping. And if they dual use, they want to come off of both because we know that there are uh, carcinogens in the water vapor. So when I work with my patients at the cancer center, we know there's an education piece there. We talk about what is, what is harmful to them with the vaping and the inflammation in their airways. So um, I, would, I start with just keeping them comfortable. So you're right. You would start, um, we don't, it's not regulated, so we don't know exactly how much nicotine is in the electronic cigarette that they might be using, but it gives us a, a starting point. 
Because you so, want to replace that. Yes. Yes. And again, keep them comfortable as they're coming down off nicotine. And that does work well. We have a lot of success with that with our patients that are ready to come off vaping as well. It seems to me vaping um, might even be more addictive. It just seems like it's easier to vape than to, you know, find a, a lighter, find a place to smoke. You know, people are vaping indoors and, and sort of things. So, mm-hmm. so, and part of that problem with the vaping is that a tobacco user will go to vaping thinking, well, I can use it anywhere. I can sit in the restaurant. I can be at Upstate, you know, while I'm sitting in the emergency room with my loved one. But you can't. And that is becoming more and more the policy here in Onondaga County. Because we know, again, it's back to that Clear the Air initiative it, it harms other people. There, there are studies where someone, uh, a loved one, could be vaping in the living room. Someone walk in and have an asthma attack and have to go to the ER. It's an irritant. You know, anything that's not meant to be in your lungs, your lung tissue tries to fight off, and, and your cells become very inflamed, and that can lead to many problems, as, as we're seeing going forward. We've got a lot of years to get research out on this, but it, it is common sense that people have to realize that anything that you're inhaling deeply into your lungs that's not meant to be there is not good for you. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate the information. My guest has been uh, Teresa Hankin. She's a respiratory therapist and tobacco treatment specialist at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Cancer takes many forms, and we take many approaches to handling it. Maxine Sussman teaches poetry at Rutgers University. She gives us a glimpse of the deep relationship between two sisters navigating cancer's reappearance in their lives. Here is Sussman's bucket list. What's yours for New Year's, my sister asks, this last evening of the old one, pink streaked above the fields. We're walking the road past the junk apple trees, the dogs' noses down, tails up in the ditch, scenting discoveries. Not the bucket you kick as it kills you, but the one with the song's hopeless hole that keeps things going for Liza and Henry. Resigned, or maybe good-natured nagging. No solution, so no end to the ending zigzag circles, sharing a life. We're just dark shapes, the flashlight busted. Once in a while, a car looms. Headlights too close, we back into the brush. Are we even at near range visible? Up the long slope home, she leans more on her walking stick, taps the center of her forehead. I've got the marker, breast cancer back after 15 years remission. Anyone, anytime, I answer thinking of deaths in the ending year, holes in the bucket, that we all have the marker tattooed inside us. But I want this to have a happy ending, the pail by the fireplace filled with kindling. We're walking back to the cabin. She leans on her stick. I'm holding on to luck. The dogs on their leashes pull us uphill.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, did doctors really find a new organ in the human body? If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.